Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo and this is Novel Conversations. This week I'll be having a conversation about the novel Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. And I'll be joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Jennifer Weinbrecht and Pat Fernberg. Jennifer, Pat, welcome. Hi, Frank. Hi, Frank. Thanks for coming in and having this conversation with me. Now, as you know, before we start, I usually like to read a little introduction. So here's what I've got for Northanger Abbey. Northanger Abbey is the story of Catherine Moreland, a reader of novels, and particularly of scary Gothic novels. Catherine Moreland is anything but a mystery, though. As open and unaffected a character as Jane Austen had ever created, Catherine fails to see the mystery surrounding her in real life. How Catherine matures and solves the mysteries about the people around her make up the novel Northanger Abbey. All right, Jennifer, I know you've read Northanger Abbey many times, but can you remember your first reaction to it? I really enjoy this book. It's very fun. It's also funny. The characters are light and entertaining. And Jane Austen sort of makes fun of other authors all the way through. So it got me interested in a lot of other books that I hadn't read. Some of the gothic novels that she mentions. Exactly. Pat, how about you? Do you remember your first reaction to reading Northanger Abbey? I read it in high school on my own, and it just made me laugh. It's so applicable to high school kids because the heroine, Catherine Moreland, is 16 or 17 years old. And the characters are lively, the plot moves swiftly, but it also deals with a lot of the issues that high school kids go through. You know, finding true friends and false friends, falling in love for the first time, dealing with your family. And you fell in love with Henry Tilney, I know. Uh, Of course I did. (laughs) Who wouldn't? (laughs) Pat, I find it interesting that you refer to Catherine Moreland, the main character in our novel, as a heroine. To my mind, Jane Austen was actually striving to make her almost an anti-heroine. Actually, Catherine is a heroine in a very real sense because she triumphs over adversity. And the adversity, in this case, is her imagination. She goes through quite a bit of growing up. Well, she does have some things that she has to survive, some horrors and disappointments that she has to conquer. And she has some people getting in her way, trying to keep her from her own happiness. But yeah, Jane Austen is making a heroine who's a real person. Well, before we start talking about the horrors in her real life, let's talk about some of the horrors she was reading about in these Gothic novels. Well, they were mostly written by women, and this was sort of the popular culture art form of the time. Women were writing novels to make money, and the novels were about women like themselves, only women who were put in terrible situations. They maybe had a fortune, but people were keeping them from being able to live their own life. Everybody was trying to take advantage of them. They were being kidnapped. They were being locked up in castles. But Pat, these novels were more than just mysteries. There was an element of almost the supernatural to them. There were ghosts, there were clanking chains, there were thunderstorms that suddenly sprang up, candles blowing out, strange messages, secret panels. You know, these novels were like movies that people watch today. And by mentioning them, she's talking about novels everybody's familiar with. Everybody knows this novel the way everybody today would know the movie The Godfather. And even though they might not admit to having read the novels, 
because that would be sort of lowbrow entertainment. Everybody had an awareness of what those novels were about. They had a real place in culture. I've got to tell you, even before I focused on Catherine Moreland, who's introduced to us really in the first sentence, what struck me first was the satire. I enjoyed it very much right from page one. Yes, the author is making fun of her characters, and she introduces Catherine by telling us everything that Catherine is not. Catherine would like to be a heroine, but everything we find out about her in the first few pages is how she's not a heroine. Tell us a little bit about how she and her family are not heroic. Well, Jane Austen begins by describing Catherine's father. Her father was a clergyman without being neglected or poor and a very respectable man, although his name was Richard, and he had never been handsome. She talks about the fact that he was not in the least addicted to locking up his daughters. She continues by mentioning that the mother was a woman who was useful, plain, had a good temper, and what was more remarkable, she was healthy. And she didn't die when Catherine was born, which is obviously necessary for a heroine. In fact, she went on to have 10 children. And they all had enough arms and legs and heads to go around, which made them a fine family, even though they weren't handsome. So everything goes against Catherine. She's a tomboy. She likes to play outside. She likes to roll down hills. She's not sitting around moping, reading poetry. She's not the smartest person in the world. She doesn't learn things just by picking up the book. In fact, she doesn't really like to study very much. We're immediately told, though, that she's a well-read young lady. She's read Gray, Pope. And these were typical things that would be assigned in the schoolroom when children are learning to read. But you don't get the feeling that she's reading high literature at a young age, that's for sure. Well, and Jane Austen also points out that she reads a lot of books, provided there was nothing like useful knowledge that could be gained from them, and provided they were all story, no reflection, and she had no objection to those kinds of books. These are the stories that she wants to be reading. Oh, yes. By the time she's about 14 or 15, she's started to get a little pretty. She's a little bit interested in clothes now, and maybe she's even keeping her hair nice. And now she starts to read the Gothic novels. And it's actually this growing up and maturing that leads to an invitation for her to start on her first adventure in our novel. She's invited to the resort town of Bath. By a childless couple who lives in the neighborhood, Mr. and Mrs. Allen. This is a welcome invitation for her. What was going on in Bath, England at this time? Bath was the place where people vacationed. They had mineral springs, and people would go there to drink these waters that were supposed to have healing properties. There were also a lot of entertainments. It was sort of the poor man's London. It was really more than what we consider a vacation today. Yeah, part of being in the gentry class is that you didn't work. So you had to occupy your time, and there were seasons. You had a season to be in the country when there was hunting and things like that. Then when the weather would change, you had a season to be in London, and there was a season for bath. So this would have been a big deal for Catherine to be invited to go along with the Allens for, let's say, two months in Bath. Absolutely. It's an opportunity to see and be seen. Well, tell me a little bit about that. How are they going to be seen, and who are they going to see? The first thing you do in Bath is you go to the pump room, and there's a pump that goes down into this well that pulls this stinky mineral water out of the well, and you get a little shot glass of this nasty water. And everybody in society went there, whether they drank the waters or not, then they went to the upper rooms and the lower rooms, and they promenade in the street. And then at night, you'd go to a play, you'd go see a musical act, and every place you went, you would run into people. And actually, at the dances and the balls, they had a master of ceremonies to introduce you to people, because you know you can't talk to people until you're introduced. The upper rooms and the lower rooms were actually ballrooms. Yes. They had ballrooms and card room. People would go there and play cards. I'm guessing the men went and played cards. While the women promenaded. Right. (laughs) Well, you had to have men to dance. 
But when the Allens first get there with Catherine Moreland, she doesn't know anybody else there. In fact, the Allens really don't know anyone else there either. Tell us a little bit more about Mrs. Allen. She was a pretty great character as well. Mrs. Allen only worries about her clothes. That's all she thinks about. So her first business in Bath is to get Catherine properly fitted up with beautiful clothes and, of course, to buy her own clothes. Mrs. Allen keeps saying things to Catherine like, Catherine, do you like your new hat? Oh, and by the way, how do you like my new hat and my gloves <laughs> and my scarf? And I hope you get to meet some young people. But oh, by the way, how do you like my new shoes? And I think I'm going to get a new parasol and the new dressmaker has some great muslin. Yeah, there's a great line in there about how did she ever even find a husband? Mrs. Allen was one of that numerous class of females whose society can raise no other emotion than surprise at there being any man in the world who could like them well enough to marry them. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's Mrs. Allen, all right. But she's good-hearted. But Jennifer, Catherine doesn't remain unacquainted for long. Yes, they're in the lower rooms, and the Master of Ceremonies introduces her to a young man named Henry Tilney, and they dance together. Finally, for Mrs. Allen, Catherine has an acquaintance. Right. Henry Tilney starts off right away asking Catherine some rather funny questions. How do you enjoy your stay in Bath? Well, that's not quite right, though. He tells her he's going to ask her some funny questions and then asks them funnily. Yes, with a very sarcastic manner. And Catherine is kind of amused by this, but she's not quite sure how to take him. It's almost like, what classes are you in? Who's your teacher? How long have you been at the school? Well, that's what he's doing. These are the social norms of the time. So this is talking by rule, and he's making fun of talking by rule. But at this point, Catherine doesn't even know there's rules for this conversation. Is that right? She doesn't. No. She's never been anywhere before. But she is enjoying this back and forth. Right, and he's coaching her through it, and it's just a funny exchange. He's giving her an education. <laughs> it was a great little moment between those two. And by the end of the chapter, she does something that a heroine is not supposed to do. Yeah, you can't fall in love before the man does. <laughs> does Catherine know she's infatuated? No, she just knows that she wants to see more of him. But before she can see more of him, we now meet the Thorpes. Tell me a little bit about Isabella Thorpe and her mom, Mrs. Thorpe. Remember, Mrs. Allen has been saying all this time, I don't know anybody. I wish I knew somebody. And it turns out that she runs into a woman that she went to school with, Mrs. Thorpe. Some 30 years ago. 30 years ago. And Mrs. Thorpe is widowed, and she has several daughters in tow. And one of them is about Catherine's age, so the two girls pair off naturally. Actually, Isabella is a few years older than Catherine. Something she's quick to tell Catherine. <laughs> Come with me. I'll show you where we should sit. I'll tell you who we should talk to. I'll tell you what we should be doing. I've been here and done it all before. And Catherine's so naive, she's very easily manipulated. And it is apparent pretty quickly. Isabella also counsels Catherine on what books to read. But not the kind of novels Catherine's been reading. But she gets her into more gothic novels. It's right about this time in our novel that we're introduced to two more characters, James Moreland and John Thorpe. Right. Catherine's brother and Isabella's brother show up in Bath. Now, where did John Thorpe and James Moreland become acquainted? At Oxford. And James has been visiting at the Thorpe house. This was all unbeknownst to Catherine. Right. She knew that her brother had an acquaintance with them, but she doesn't know how serious that acquaintance has become. It becomes apparent to the reader right away that Isabella and James have an interest in each other. It's obviously not apparent to Catherine. No. <laughs> Catherine just thinks, isn't this nice that my brother and Isabella get along so well? And they're already friends. What about John Thorpe, Isabella's brother? Oh, dear. John Thorpe is everybody's bad frat brother. He is a braggart. 
He swears constantly. He is crazy about horses and drinking. And he's a braggart about his horses. His horse and his carriage for him would be like some kid today talking about his sports car or something, and he just doesn't shut up about it. And it's apparent to us, the reader, the way he's talking about this horse and carriage, we know none of what he's saying can be true. Oh, yeah, it's a clunker. But Catherine buys it hook, line, and clunker. He's not just that way with his friends. He's that way with his family. But James Moreland seems to think he's a good-natured fella. Yeah, but what does Catherine think about John Thorpe? Well, as naive as Catherine is, you get the feeling she sees through him pretty quick. But Pat, what does John Thorpe think about Catherine? Oh, he's knocked out by Catherine. He's convinced that things are going to work out real well with her. Yeah, but what about Henry Tilney? Henry Tilney's been missing for a while. Catherine's been looking everywhere for him. But she doesn't have long to wait. That's right. He shows up at the next dance. Yes. But he's not alone. No. All right, Jennifer and Pat, we had all of our main characters at the nightly dance in Bath. Catherine Moreland is there with her escort, John Thorpe. Isabella is there with her escort, James Moreland. And then Henry Tilney shows up with a beautiful woman on his arm, who I hope is just his sister. And that is indeed who it is. But there's a problem for Catherine. She's engaged to dance with John Thorpe when she'd really rather be dancing with Henry Tilney. Right, and the rules of etiquette say that once you've accepted a dance with someone, you either have to dance with them, or if you don't, you have to sit out. But John Thorpe is nowhere to be found. He's gone off to one of those card rooms you were telling me about. He's talking about his horses and his dogs. Now, Mr. Tilney does come up and introduces his sister and her chaperone to Mrs. Allen, and he does get around to asking Catherine to dance. And she's mortified because she has to deny it. And it says that she expressed her sorrow on the occasion so very much as if she really felt it that had Thorpe, who joined her just afterwards, been half a minute earlier, he might have thought her sufferings rather too acute. (laughs) So she is going to have to dance with John Thorpe, whether she likes it or not. She is, and unfortunately, by the time she's available, Henry has gone off with another woman to have a little tea. Yeah, so she misses her opportunity to dance with Henry Tilney. So the whole evening ends up being a disappointment for her, and she goes to bed unhappy. But she wakes up with a plan. Yes, she's going to go to the pump room and run into Miss Tilney and keep that acquaintance going. She wants to make more of an acquaintance with Miss Tilney. But that plan is spoiled, too, when her brother, John Thorpe, and Isabella show up and invite her out for a carriage ride. And she thinks it sounds like fun because they talk about a castle they're going to go to. So she goes along. Do they ever get to that ancient ruined castle? No, they never make it there. But Catherine does get a chance to renew and increase her acquaintance with Miss Tilney. Yes, another time she actually meets Miss Tilney and they make an arrangement to go for a walk. Henry and Miss Tilney and Catherine are going to go out for a walk the next day. As long as it doesn't rain. Right, but it begins to drizzle in the morning, and about the time it clears up, John Thorpe, Isabella, and James show up, and they demand to go riding again. That's right. Catherine wants nothing to do with this ride. She's still disappointed from the first ride. She wants to go out with Miss Tilney and Henry. Absolutely. But when John Thorpe tells her that he saw them riding away in a carriage, she thinks, oh, well, that's too bad. Okay, I'll go with them. But when they're going down the road, she sees Henry Tilney and his sister Eleanor walking toward her house, which means John Thorpe lied to her. And she can't get John to let her out of the carriage. No, she absolutely starts yelling at him, stop, stop. So now Catherine comes to realize something that we as readers have known for a little while. John Thorpe is a liar and a bully. Yes. That night at the theater, Catherine sees Henry Tilney, and she figures he's mad at her for breaking this engagement for the walk because of the way he's talking to her. So when she tries to talk to him about it, she tells him, 
I tried to get him to stop the carriage. I would have run down the street after you if I could have. And of course, Henry can't be mad at her (laughs) after that. And they make an arrangement to meet the next day if the weather holds, and they'll all go a-walking again. But Jennifer, this walk is also going to be interrupted. Well, again, John, Isabella, and James want to try to take the carriages all the way to Blaze Castle, and they show up, and they actually restrain Catherine at one point. Physically. Physically, to try to talk her out of running after Miss Tilney. But Catherine has a strong will, and she pulls away and runs down to the Tilney's house, where she's led in by the general and tries to explain she needs to see Eleanor and apologize. The general? Who's the general? Henry and Eleanor's father is General Tilney, who is a very powerful and a very imposing man. Wealthy, we also believe. Very wealthy. Yes, and General Tilney invites her to stay there and talk to the kids, and he invites her to come back the next day for dinner. So he's actually very polite to Catherine, very nice to her. He's almost working overtime in a way that Henry and Eleanor can't quite believe because he's so attentive and so polite to Catherine and so interested in everything that interests her. This is not the father they know their general to be. No, he even has his daughter Eleanor invite Catherine to come and stay with them in the country at their home, Northanger Abbey. Finally, we're going to get to Northanger Abbey. Yes. (laughs) But before she leaves for Northanger Abbey, she gets one pretty big surprise. James and Isabella are engaged. Now, wait a minute. This wasn't a surprise to anybody else, but it was a surprise to Catherine. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, and James goes home to get the consent of his parents. And, of course, they readily agree, and Isabella's just thrilled. But then the second letter comes, and Isabella finds out that they're going to have to wait a few years for James to acquire his living, and then it's going to be about 400 pounds a year. Not quite what Isabella thought. A little below her expectations. Isabella actually has the audacity to make comments to Catherine about her parents and how Catherine's father is clearly not giving the money that he ought to be giving, and she knows he has it. She wants more money, and she wants it sooner. Yes. And Catherine tries to justify these comments. She tries to ignore them because Isabella also at the same time will say things like how much she loves her and how much she loves her brother. It's very confusing for Catherine, but she's catching on a little bit here, I think. But it's not just what Isabella says to Catherine that gets Catherine upset. Yes, Catherine also sees Isabella flirt with a very handsome man who has now come to Bath. It's actually Henry and Eleanor's older brother, Captain Tilney, Frederick Tilney. And they flirt under her nose. Isabella, of course, tells Catherine that it doesn't mean anything and that she really doesn't like this horrid, horrid man who keeps pestering her. And Catherine is so upset about it, she asks Henry, tell your brother that Isabella's engaged to my brother. And Henry says he's known since he came here. And basically, what do you want me to do about it? She doesn't understand why Henry won't step in. Why won't Henry step in? Well, of course, he's not going to step in in a situation like this. It's an affair of someone else's heart. But he also tells Catherine that, you know, it's not my brother who's hurting your brother. If anybody's hurting your brother, isn't it Isabella? And it's pretty much at this time that the Tilneys leave for Northanger Abbey with Catherine. And the general, in keeping with this very polite treatment of Catherine, he arranges for the second half of the trip for Catherine to ride in the carriage with Henry. Alone. And it's really at this time that we see the relationship between Henry Tilney and Catherine Moreland develop. He teases her all the time. And here in the carriage, he realizes that she's very excited because it's an abbey, which is a sort of romantic idea from one of these Gothic novels. 
Right, it really fits in with the kind of book she's been reading. And he can't resist playing with her a little bit. He tells her a little gothic tale of his own. Oh, he does, but while telling her this wholly imaginative tale, he laces in it little tangible things, things she'll see in her room, such as a tall, dark chest with papers inside. And she keeps saying, oh, you're kidding me. You're teasing me. You're teasing me now. And he keeps saying, perhaps. But Jennifer, in keeping with the rest of this satire that Jane Austen has us on, when she gets to Northanger Abbey, it's not what she's imagined from her readings in Gothic novels. Oh, no, it's very clean. It's very modern. You can even see through the windows. Yeah, there are no cobwebs in the corners. The housekeeper is nice and normal. (laughs) There are all kinds of servants, so there should only be one poor overworked servant, and there are servants everywhere. No crumbling towers. No. And we still haven't found any skeletons. But she's enjoying herself. It's comfortable. Her room is bright. She has a fire in the fireplace. Everything is made to her liking. And as she's dressing for dinner... She suddenly sees the same chest that Henry described on the trip when he was talking about the Abbey, and she's intrigued. She can't resist trying to open the chest. Yeah, she struggles with it quite a bit and finds, of all things, papers with mysterious writing. But then, of course, she's late. She has to go down to dinner, and at that point, a huge, horrible storm kicks up. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Just as Henry predicted it would. (laughs) Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So in the evening, she's getting ready for bed. She tries to read the papers, but her candle is extinguished by accident, and so she can't even see the papers. She's going to be up all night, but of course she falls asleep right away. And the next thing she knows is the maid comes in at 8 o'clock to open her shutters. So she grabs the papers off the floor because she doesn't want anyone to know that she's been snooping. Been snooping and discovers a laundry list, a recipe for how to deal with a sick horse. (laughs) (laughs) And she's so embarrassed and she's glad that nobody knows about this. And she swears to never let her fantasy get away with her again. And while all this is going on, we can almost hear Henry in the background chuckling. (laughs) Henry is laughing, but it's not like John Thorpe malice in it. Henry's aware of how innocent she is, and he's just having a little fun. And except for a couple of these little practical jokes, Catherine's having a great time at Northanger Abbey. But then she does discover there is a mystery at Northanger Abbey. Yeah, General Tilney is very stern. He's a very rigid man. Proper was the word that came to my mind. And he's also very competitive. He's always trying to compare his property to Mr. Allen's for some reason, which she just totally ignores. But he wants to take her around the gardens. He wants to take her through the house. And all she wants to do is tour the abbey and see if there are any dark cloisters left over from a few hundred years ago. But he keeps changing the subject. So instead of touring the house, they tour the grounds. Eleanor wants to go for a particular walk. He doesn't want to walk there. And as they're walking down this sort of melancholy lane, Eleanor tells her this was a favorite of my mother's. And Catherine begins to get some ideas about Eleanor's mother and her relationship with the general. Right. If this was the mother's favorite walk, it should be the general's favorite walk. Why is he avoiding this place? And some other little things. For instance? That she learns from talking with Eleanor and from talking with Henry. The mother died after a very short but violent illness. And there's a portrait, but General Tilney doesn't have it in the drawing room. Eleanor has it in her room. 
Pat, what conclusion does Catherine Moreland jump to? Immediately, she's convinced that the general has murdered his wife and that she may even be walled up inside the abbey. (laughs) Or she may even be still alive, walled up inside the abbey. Okay, okay, maybe Catherine has read one too many Gothic novels. But Jennifer, eventually, Catherine's curiosity gets the best of her. Catherine goes to visit Eleanor's mother's room, which has been preserved the way it was when she died many years ago. Locked and preserved. And when she comes into the room, she sees right away that she's been ridiculous. The room is modern, comfortable, beautiful. It's not this sort of dungeon that she was picturing. And she suddenly feels very stupid once again. And she's snooping. She's not supposed to be there. So she goes to leave. And she gets caught. Right. Henry Tilney catches her in the act, realizes what she's up to. And Catherine, as honest as she is, lets him know that she had these terrible suspicions. It actually turns into kind of a funny moment. Yes, it does. And now she really swears off fantasizing about Gothic novels. But she has a revelation. The general may not have murdered his wife, but he's not entirely a nice person. And that's really what Jane Austen is trying to tell us through this novel, that real people, not people in novels, have a little bit of good and a little bit of bad in them. Yes, this is a lesson that Catherine and her brother James also have to learn. And James does, and he learns it the hard way. Well, Pat, what does happen to James? Catherine gets a letter the next morning telling her that his engagement to Isabella Thorpe is at an end. He's pretty broken up in the letter. James explains that Isabella is now engaged to Captain Frederick Tilney, Henry and Eleanor's older brother. Now, Catherine isn't going to tell them about this, and that lasts for about half an hour. (laughs) She shares the letter. Well, it's pretty clear she's got problems when she's crying at the dinner table. Henry and Eleanor are very skeptical that their brother is going to marry Isabella. She doesn't have a fortune, and they don't think her father's going to allow it. But nonetheless, Catherine's convinced. And when Frederick doesn't show up for a few days, Henry and Eleanor start to think maybe there's more to this than appears. But eventually, Frederick does show up at the house, and it's pretty clear that he has never given much thought to Isabella. In the meantime, Catherine gets a letter from Isabella. Finally, a letter she's been waiting for for weeks. And unfortunately, Isabella is making light of the fact, oh, I never really loved that Frederick Tilney. And as for your brother, I don't understand what went wrong with your brother. I have not heard from him. I don't understand. Clearly, Catherine knows Isabella too well to believe her now. At this point, Catherine says, my eyes are open. I'll never be deceived by her again. All right, so Pat, Jennifer, even though Catherine's feeling bad for her brother and the situation he's found himself in, she at least feels that the situation's been resolved. She's now with true friends. She's actually going to start enjoying herself at Northanger Abbey. Yeah, she's having a very good time. Henry and Eleanor and Catherine are there alone for a while because the general has left for London on some business. Henry and Eleanor are more relaxed when the general's not around. Definitely. And Catherine and Eleanor discuss extending Catherine's visit for a few more weeks. And Pat, Catherine's okay with this idea. There's no objection to spending more time with Henry Tilney. But her happiness is not going to last for long. The general comes home and he's completely changed. The general comes home late at night, and he sends Eleanor to Catherine's room to tell her that she's being kicked out of the house. Do we know why? Does Eleanor know why? No. Eleanor can offer no explanation. She tries to make the best of it. She tries to comfort Catherine to explain that she'll go with her. And Catherine finds out that instead of being up for breakfast, she's leaving before breakfast. Not only that, but she's not even traveling in the general's coach. She's being sent by public transportation. And she's being sent home alone. And not only is this not the proper thing for a gentleman to do, but it's also dangerous. She's being sent home without an escort and literally with no money in her pocket. 
Right. The girls realize this at the last minute, and Eleanor gives her a little bit of money so that she can at least pay her way home. Further, Catherine has never traveled alone anywhere. So how she's going to know where to change carriages and how to get on the right one? That's right. This could really be a very dangerous trip. And I find it interesting that after 150 pages of Jane Austen making fun of gothic novels with their mysteries and their cliffhangers, she more or less delivers us one. What's going to happen to Catherine? Why did the general change his opinion of her? Will Catherine ever get home safe? So let's solve these mysteries. Does Catherine get home okay? Actually, she does. For someone who has never been on a trip by herself, she has figured out the entire system. She's fine. She gets home safe and sound. And she gets home, and her parents are surprised to see her, but they're glad to see her, and they make her at home. But Catherine is depressed. Well, she's got plenty to be depressed about. Yes, and her mother's very worried about this, and her mother's trying to improve her attitude. She can understand her being down a day or two, because after all, she was treated terribly. But she's trying to get Catherine to perk up a little bit. So she's hunting up interesting articles on good behavior for her daughter to try and put her in the right frame of mind. And they even go and visit the Allens, which doesn't do much for her either. Yeah, but nothing's going to put Catherine into a better frame of mind until she finds out what went wrong with her relationship with the Tilneys. She doesn't have long to wait. No. What happens? The best thing in the world happens. Henry Tilney walks through her front door. Finally, a hero. Yes, and her parents have no idea who he is, but they assume that he's fine if Catherine knows him. Catherine certainly knows who he is. Does she know why he's there? Well, she must have a good idea. Well, I'm sure he's going to be able to explain himself, but can he explain his father's behavior? Yes, he can. What is that explanation? First, he tells Catherine that he's in love with her, that he wants to marry her, and of course, she consents. And it's a good thing he told her that before he explained the general, because when he tells her about the general... He's going to need all her love now, isn't he? Yeah, she might not have consented if she'd heard about his father first. Pat, what does she learn about his father, the general? As we've mentioned before, the father, General Tilney, is an extremely proud man. He's an extremely arrogant man. He is very, very involved in comparing his own wealth to the wealth of others. Avaricious comes to mind. And he was misled about Catherine by John Thorpe, who, as we know, exaggerates. And downright lies. Well, yes, John Thorpe overstated slightly the wealth of Catherine and the Allens. And so General Tilney had it in his head that Catherine was an heiress. And when he ran into John Thorpe during his trip to London, he discovered from John Thorpe that, well, that wasn't quite true. As a matter of fact, John Thorpe went as far in the opposite direction by lying about Catherine's family and saying that they were very poor and money grubbers. Well, now we understand why the general felt the way he did, but it really doesn't put the general in a very good light. No, it doesn't. Henry left on very bad terms with his father. I should hope so. And Henry has come to explain and to offer himself to Catherine for what he is, without the benefit of the Abbey and his father and all that wealth. Not even with his father's consent. No, which is the objection that Catherine's parents have. You know, if your father won't consent to this, that's a bad way to start a marriage. They don't want his blessing, just his consent. And actually, they withhold their consent. Until they get the general's consent. But they look the other way if any letters are exchanged during this period, yes. <laughs> being the nice parents that they are. They are pretty nice parents. And in very short order, the general gives his consent because he learns the truth. The family isn't really as poor as he heard. In fact, Catherine's going to have 3,000 pounds settled on her. Not only that, but Eleanor has married a very rich and important man, someone she's been in love with for a long time, 
but who wasn't important enough for the general until someone died and made him an heir, and now he's a lord somebody or other. So the general's happy with that, and he's able to give his he's consent. He's in a good mood. Yes. <laughs> so the story ends happily ever after. Very unlike the Gothic novels that all of these characters were reading. Absolutely. Now, of course, Jennifer, Pat, during our novel conversation, we can't get to every character. We can't get to every moment in the book. So now is your opportunity. If you have a favorite character we didn't get to or if you have a favorite moment you wanted to read for us, here's your chance. I have a quote here. It's not very flattering to women, I guess. Catherine's dressing up for a ball, and she's rather pleased with her appearance. It would be mortifying to the feelings of many ladies could they be made to understand how little the heart of man is affected by what is costly or new in their attire, how little it is biased by the texture of their muslin, and how unsusceptible of peculiar tenderness towards the spotted, the sprigged, the mole, or the jackanet. <laughs> I did like that quote. I think we all suspect that, but we don't want to think that's true when we're out <laughs> shopping for a beautiful dress. <laughs> I know that's what I always think of. <laughs> yeah, Frank. I have a quote here. It occurs during one of the dances when James and Isabella want to go off and dance, but Catherine's waiting to be found by John Thorpe. And this really gives you a little bit of insight into Isabella. Oh, I assure you, she said to James, I would not stand up without your dear sister for all the world. For if I did, we should certainly be separated the whole evening. Catherine accepted this kindness with gratitude, and they continued as they were for three minutes longer, when Isabella, who had been talking to James on the other side of her, turned again to his sister and whispered, My dear creature, I am afraid I must leave you. Your brother is so amazingly impatient to begin. I know you will not mind me going away, and I dare say John will be back in a moment, and then you may easily find me. Yeah, she says one thing and does another all the time. I would never leave you for about three minutes. You know, and it's that kind of satire and sarcasm that I really enjoy in this novel. Well, Pat, before we end our conversation about today's book, Northanger Abbey, I know you have a quote that you wanted to read for us about a novel conversation that Catherine and Henry had. Yes, there's another point in the novel where Henry and Catherine are talking and she compares a piece of scenery to the coast of France. And Henry says, oh, you've been abroad then, a little surprised. And Catherine said, no, I only mean that I've read about it. It always puts me in the mind of the country that Emily and her father traveled through in The Mysteries of Udolpho, but you never read novels, I dare say. Why not? Because they're not clever enough for you. Gentlemen read better books. And Henry responds to her. The person, be it a gentleman or lady, who has not pleasure in a good novel must be intolerably stupid. <laughs> you know, that is a great quote. It was a great read. Very, very enjoyable. Fun. <laughs> Jennifer Pat, I want to thank you both for coming in and having a conversation with me today about the novel Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. Thank, thank you, you Frank. Frank. Thank you again, both. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Ted, hello. Hi, Frank. This is really a fun one today because there are layers beneath layers. All right, Ted, well, let's start peeling back some of those layers. This was one of the first novels that Jane Austen wrote, but it was not published till after her death. Why was that? Actually, it was purchased in 1803. She wrote it in 1798 or started it. Her family wasn't too sure which. In 1803, she sold it to a publisher for 10 pounds. Well, if a publisher bought it, why didn't he publish it? He read it. Ah. Problem was, we're looking at it without their glasses, in a sense. This was a very different time than we think, and she was, in a sense, attacking the elite, of which her family was part. So the publisher didn't like it, or was he afraid the public wouldn't like it? One-third of the people in the area of Bath at that time were near starvation. 
Jane was outraged when the elite, which, as I say, included her family, would prattle on about the latest Gothic novels and ignore the people around them. So this was a social satire. And since the people with money were the people she was ridiculing, the publisher probably got a little bit nervous. How did it come to be published after her death? He lost it. And somewhere around 1813, 1814, he found it, managed to sell it to another publisher who decided, and of course this was many years later, it was fine to publish it. So in 1816, she was asked to do a quick rewrite and went through it. I don't know how much change she made. And then she died. Well, Ted, not only did she update her novel, I know you've got an ad she even wrote for it. Yes, this was possibly the last thing she ever wrote. And she addressed it to the public and said that she wanted them to bear in mind that 13 years have passed since it was finished, many more since it was begun, and that during that period, places, manners, books, and opinions have undergone considerable changes. But Ted, what Jane Austen doesn't mention in that advertisement is that her notoriety has changed. If this had been published when she first wrote it, no one would have known who Jane Austen was. The novel probably would have died. As you said, most people would have hated it. Now it's being published as a Jane Austen novel. That's a very different thing. Now it's being published a generation later, and the country and the economy have changed. And that's really the more important part at this time. Well, Ted, during our preliminary discussions, you mentioned that in Northanger Abbey, Jane Austen was plagiarizing herself. Do you want to explain that a little bit better? Well, quoting herself, maybe is fair to say. When she was 16, she got a little bit tired of Oliver Goldsmith's History of England, very serious work. So she wrote the History of England herself with no references whatsoever. And it's written by, as she says, a partial, prejudiced, and ignorant historian. And this is something she did when she was 16? 16 years old. Where does the Northanger Abbey part come from? Read Catherine Moreland's talk. Catherine Moreland, the character, is quoting Jane Austen, the writer. For example, on Henry IV, it is supposed that Henry was married, since he had certainly four sons, but it is not in my power to inform the reader who was his wife. Well, now wait, let me get this straight. That's Catherine Moreland in the novel Northanger Abbey reading a quote that you say came from Jane Austen's early history of England? Yes. <laughs> Ted, I've got to tell you, it's for details like that that I enjoy our EndNotes segment. Once again, I want to thank you for bringing EndNotes to today's conversation about the novel Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. You're welcome. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Pat Fernberg and Jennifer Weinbrecht. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.